I'm going to teach you how to tap into your intuitive intelligence, your deep emotional intelligence, and even, let's just say, your spiritual intelligence, which then turns that last 1% into another 99%. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. On this episode, we're talking with my friend, Commander Mark Devine, former Navy SEAL and author of Unbeatable Mind, Forge Resiliency and Mental Toughness to Succeed at an Elite Level. Mark Devine created a nationwide mentoring program for SEAL trainees back in the day, and this program was credited with increasing the quality of Navy SEAL candidates and reducing the attrition rate at BUDS, the Basic Underwater Demolition School, aka SEAL training, and was the inspiration for his program, SEAL Fit. We're discussing winning in the mind before entering the arena, physical and mental preparation, including mental toughness exercises taught to Navy SEALs, and how these all add up to creating an unbeatable spirit. This conversation was interesting because I never thought I'd have so much in common with a former Navy SEAL that's certainly the type of person that I thought I was almost in many ways the opposite of. So I really enjoyed this conversation. I really enjoyed discussing performance at an elite level, high performers, and mental toughness from what I thought was an outside perspective and turns out not so much. So let's hear from Mark Devine. So we were talking yesterday and one of the things that struck me was that you had started in a corporate career before joining the Navy. And that for me was kind of striking because when I ask other friends of mine that are SEALs, or when I ask guys like Jocko, they're like, I knew I wanted to be a SEAL since I was eight. And it sounds like you kind of had a, a very different path from most. Yeah, I would say I did. I I didn't really even consider a military career until I was in my early 20s. And I was working as an auditor slash CPA, working toward my CPA certificate in Manhattan, working with Coopers and Librand, which is now PricewaterhouseCoopers. So, you know, I was kind of groomed to be a business guy. My family has a business that's been around since like 1890, still cranking today. My brothers run it and my sister's there. And, you know, I'm kind of the black sheep who, you know, kind of turned its back and walked away from the flock. (laughs) I can't imagine that they would be disappointed with your choice of work, though, right? I mean, it's kind of hard to be like, oh, you went to serve the country? How dare you? They were mortified, actually. I mean, it didn't fit their mold of reality for me. And, you know, I was throwing my life away. You got to understand, this is Northeast. And, you know, I was on track to hit all the wickets, right? MBA, CPA from top colleges and, you know, working on Wall Street. You know, many of my peers are at the top of their field. I got a buddy who runs Ernst & Young, and I got another buddy who's the CFO at BlackRock. And these are my peer group. They were my fraternity brothers. And so I was kind of heading down that road, and my parents were thinking I'd either stay in that path, but my dad was hoping that eventually I'd come back and take over the family business. And so a career in the military was certainly not the image they had of me. Well, one of the reasons that I was really interested in talking with you is not just because it's great to talk to somebody who has the experience that you do in the military, but also because of where you came from. I mean, I used to work on Wall Street as well as an attorney, but it sounds like, and forgive the phrase here, it sounds like you come from kind of a blue blood family in a way. Is that fair to say? I think it's fair to say, at least they had that kind of self-concept and my mom thinks she's descended from the queen, you know? (laughs) That's highly debatable. Like I said, the prevailing attitude back in the Northeast, at least, was the military is if you have no other options. In fact, I think that actually happened to my father. You know, he got in trouble in college and the judge basically said, hey, go to the army or go to jail. And so he joined the army and got in and did two years in 11th Airborne in Germany. And so the army and the military was not considered a good thing. And, 
it took them a while to be fair to, they did come around and they learned about the seals and you know after my mom stopped listening to her liberal friends who said that the seals are a bunch of baby killers she started to come around and appreciate that they actually were an elite unit that was doing incredibly valuable service to our country and blah 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 but they really had no idea what the seals were and you got to understand you know like Jocko came around 20 years after me or 15 years after me and and there was a ton written about the seals the discovery channel had their episode about the making of class 226 and i was in class 170 in 1990 and in the 80s there was literally zero information about the modern seals there were some books about vietnam and you know i remember a classic called men with green faces which i read about 20 times and these were the early seals when there were only a few hundred guys and they were just crusty frogmen who just were sneaky peaky and scared the shit out of their enemies once I figured out who they were and what they represented, it became deeply inspirational to me. I might have been like Jocko. Had I known about them at eight years old, I could have been like, yeah, that's what I want to do. But there was no information. I had never been exposed to them until I was in my early 20s. That's a good point, right? Because I guess when you joined, and I'm not trying to make you feel old, but there was no uh, internet to speak of. No internet, no TV shows about the SEALs. They were truly a secret organization back then. Right, and you found out about it probably when they went, hey man, pretty good at all this crazy stuff we're putting you through. Why don't you try something a little bit more your speed? I mean, is that kind of how this happened for you? Or is it common knowledge inside the military? A couple things happened. One is there was a recruiting poster that I came across one day. And for some reason, you know, they were finally like, okay, we're going to recruit for the SEALs. But the real reason was they wanted to use it as an enticement to get really good people into the military who really had no chance of being SEALs. And to this day, that's kind of the dirty little secret. There's literally several thousand guys a year who try and 200 who make it. And those other thousands end up in the fleet and they become pretty darn good Navy guys, but they don't become SEALs because they get injured or they quit or the 10,000 reasons why it doesn't happen. But there was this poster that I stumbled across one night walking home from work. And the title of the poster was Be Someone Special. And it had imagery of guys jumping out of airplanes doing like a halo jump and a sniper in a hide sight that you could barely see and really cool stuff, a submarine lockout going on. And I was just like transfixed by this poster. And I had already been kind of in this existential search because I was being challenged by the career of being a CPA. I was bored to death and I was a very physical guy. Obviously, you need to be as a SEAL. And, you know, I spent pretty much every waking hour when I wasn't working or going to my MBA classes working out three times a day. I would go for long runs in the morning. I'd sneak away and go to the gym at lunchtime while all my peers went and did their lunch. And then I went to the dojo between work and my night classes at NYU. And so I was training like four or five hours a day doing all that and thinking that I could just do that for the rest of my life and that'd be cool. Eventually, I was like, this really sucks, you know, trying to squeeze this in. Nobody really cared about it besides me. There was no culture of physicality, you know, in that corporate world. They made it really hard. And people kind of were thinking that I was just this dumb jock just because I like to work out. The reality was I, I just like to work out because it was a healthy thing to do and gave me pleasure. And I felt like I was whole when I was training like that. You know what I mean by that, right? Most people don't appreciate that feeling. And so the SEALs, when I found them, they were like, holy shit. This is the next best thing, or actually it's probably better for us than being a professional athlete and getting paid a lot of money because not only do we become professional athletes and get paid to do our job, a very cool physical job that requires us to be on the elite edge of our body-mind system, but um, you know we get to go serve the country doing really cool and dangerous things. And so for a small group of people who identify as warriors, that's really, really inspiring. 
What is the difference in your mind between the population that identifies themselves as warriors and those that don't? As a civilian, I see this in some ways because we get a lot of Navy SEALs, special operators coming through Art of Charm, and, and a lot of people go, what? what are those guys doing there? And the reason I think that you'll understand versus civilians who say, what are those guys doing there, is because if you can get 1% edge, you will do anything to get that edge, and Art of Charm will give you an edge, and you all don't have ego attached to training. The civilian population thinks, oh, I have to go do this dumb course because my boss wants me to get better at this. Whereas if you have an opportunity in the military, and especially at the elite level, it's called an opportunity for training. They look at it as an opportunity, not as some sort of punishment because you're not good at something and you need to get better. First off, you know, when it comes to training, the SEALs and others like SEALs, like warriors, it is a mandatory thing because SEALs are constantly and warriors, I'll use those terms kind of interchange, are constantly striving to improve themselves, to master themselves, to get, you know, that 1% better every single day. And we even, it's part of our ethos, you know, the ethos statement in the SEALs that speaks to this is called earn your trident every day. The trident is the metal insignia that, you know, has now become kind of well-known about the SEALs. Earning your trident every day means, hey, whatever you did yesterday, forget about it because you can't rest on your laurels. Check your ego. Now today's a new day. And uh, you better start putting out right now. So put out with your physical training, put out with whatever skills you're going to develop, put out with becoming the best version of yourself, you know, learning how to communicate more effectively, learning how to parachute more effectively, learning how to dive more effectively, learning how to lead more effectively, learning how to be a more effective teammate and all of the things that go with that. And so there's a constant commitment to mastering the self, but not in a way that you're just going to do it so you can go make more money, but so you can serve your teammates, and your mission more effectively. And what makes a warrior, back to your original question, what makes a warrior be like that? That's a really, really good question. I mean, I don't know. Is it nature versus nurture? Do we come in this way? Is it an archetype that just gets nurtured until you know we say, hey, this is a pretty cool way to live? It's a very inspiring, let's say, ethos to live by. That's kind of like one of the reasons I teach what I teach is because people are like struggling right now. And they're saying, my God, you know, I can't put out anymore. And I'm saying, well, you're looking for improvement in the wrong places, right? You know, keep trying to do the same things and expect different results. No, it doesn't work that way. You got to start doing different things to crack open the next level of potential. I think that you've stumbled on something really interesting here, which is that you have to do things differently. But can you give a concrete example of that? Because I, I would assume people who come to your training or our training, for example, they already know that, they just don't know what those things are. And it seems like you do, and I think somebody who's a high performer, a partner at a law firm, for example, they already kind of understand that. How do you find where they can improve? We're all humans, right? So whether you're a lawyer, a doctor, or a Navy SEAL, we all kind of come in with the same raw material. And you know, last week I was down at Harvard Med School talking to some neurosurgeons. I was invited down there to talk to them it was a great honor, but it's really cool. And I said, okay, guys, you are like the seals of the medical profession. You know, this is Harvard, your brain surgeons. I'm not going to give you anything on how you can do your job better at a technical or physical level. You already know how to get all the knowledge and skills that you need. And, and you pretty much mastered that. So let's just say you're operating a 99% effectiveness already right? Whereas most human beings are probably at like 50%. So, but these Harvard surgeons are working about 99% and they put in 110 hours a week, you know, just mastering their craft. And I said, there's 1% that you've left on the table and that feels like a lot to you. And I said, and what the SEALs can teach you and what I can teach you through my training, which I call Unbeatable Mind, 
is how to take that 1% and turn it into a whole nother 99% of potential. And what you're going to do different is not what you've been doing before. This is back to your original question. What you've been doing before is like looking at skills and knowledge, which I call horizontal learning, and then just trying to scoop up as much as you can, but it's just filling your head with all sorts of stuff. And then you use that stuff, that knowledge stuff to do your job. Temporarily empty your mind of all that stuff, empty the cup, and then to like turn your attention inward. So instead of outwardly looking for horizontal skills, turn your attention inward and begin to develop the skills for what I call vertical knowledge. And vertical knowledge is like essentially the skills to evolve your consciousness so that when you click into another level of conscious awareness, then A, you have more capacity to absorb more knowledge and skills. B, the way you approach the application of the skills and the knowledge, the horizontal skills that you already have, you approach those from a whole nother level of awareness or insight. And so, you know, said another way is I'm going to teach you how to tap into your intuitive intelligence, your deep emotional intelligence, and even, let's just say, your spiritual intelligence, which then turns that last 1%, which has been focused mostly on the outer world, turns that into another 99% of potential from which uh, you can start to perform at a higher level with. Can you give me an example of horizontal knowledge versus vertical knowledge? Because I understand the concepts, but I'm not sure I can put my finger on a particular type of skill. Sure. And I've classified the vertical into actually plateaus. I call them the five plateaus. So most people in our country are either at the second, third, or fourth plateau. So second plateau is someone who's extremely conformist. These are the people that elected Trump. They're very ego slash ethnocentric, meaning, you know, their community, their company, their tribe, their football team, their religion is the only one worth caring about. And they live in a very archetypal way. Like I meant to be just like my family said, you know, I'm meant to be a business guy for the family business. That's pretty much all they can see of me. And that greased the groove of my subconscious mind to kind of think that was the way I was going to go. And so I went about accruing the horizontal skills of becoming a business guy. So CPA, MBA, learning how to read financial statements, learning how to communicate in the business setting, learning how to dress and project myself as a successful business guy, all the things you teach, plus learning the technical skills, passing the CPA exam, getting my MBA, learning how to audit a company, you know, all that stuff. Those are horizontal skills. And had I not then turned my attention to Zen meditation, mindfulness meditation, yoga, all the Eastern tools, which got me on the path of vertical development, I would have stayed right there. There would have been no vertical development. I'd still be at uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers or I'd be running the family business right now. The outer skills were easy and that's what everyone's been focused on, getting those new knowledge, getting that new skill. And what I learned starting in age 20 was that, I mean, literally when I sat down to practice Zen through my martial arts training, and not just uh, talking about it or doing a little bit here and there, but you know, hour-long sits, weekends at the Zen Mountain Monastery in Woodstock, New York, it began to change my brain. There's a neuroplastic effect, and it unlocked this verticality in the sense that when I came back from those, and over time, you know, it's, it's not an instantaneous thing. There's no linear roadmap that shows, okay, you do 27 hours and all of a sudden you're going to shift into this. And if you do a thousand hours, you shift into that. It's different for everybody. You have to be patient, but I generally found that a year of training of that type of meditation, and to be fair, Jordan, there's many, many different ways to meditate and they're very important to appreciate the progression and the path. So that's what I mean by vertical development is using skills to curate the inner domain, the mind, 
so you can expand the capacity of your mind beyond the linear rational judging mind, which is basically the whole work of the bulwark of the work that we do, thinking, analyzing, making decisions, and to curate and to tap into that, like I said, the emotional, intuitive, and spiritual intelligence that is also part of our mind system. But it's, it takes different skills and different tools to, to access those. So third plateau is like very achievement oriented. So most, if not all of the business community is there, a lot of my SEAL friends, and it's all about, you know, hey, this is great. We're outward focused on achieving. We're really operating at a high level of success. My Harvard friends were all there. You know, there's something kind of left on the table. The fourth plateau is kind of what we call the sensitive self. This is where you're starting to open up to more of a world-centric point of view. It's not just your viewpoint or your knowledge, and you're feeling a little bit more connected to the rest of the world. You know, so this is where like the green movement and environmentalists all fit in here, but it's still not a complete integrated point of view or perspective or consciousness. That, that doesn't happen until you hit the fifth plateau, which is the integrated plateau. And this is where we want to get to and, and beyond. So I began to evolve very quickly through the fourth and into the fifth plateau because of this training, uh, which then kept it going and kind of was accelerated through my Navy SEAL career as a leader. It's a big part of what I train today. So there's probably a little bit more than you were reckoning for, but that's generally what I mean by vertical development is evolving your consciousness, which shows up as your sense of self, your worldview, your ability to connect and relate to more and more expanding sets of people until at the world-centric fifth plateau level, you know, all human beings become equally valuable. That doesn't mean equal in terms of who they are and what they bring to the world, but, you know, you can see their worth and you're not going to vilify them or demonize them. This is kind of like akin to the total warrior who loves his enemy, but is still okay to take his life because the guy's doing bad things. You're listening to The Art of Charm with Jordan Harbinger and his guest, Mark Devine. We'll get right back to the show after these messages. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com charm. Just go to Indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Thanks for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. And now back to Jordan and Mark Devine. 
I love the idea of the five plateaus, and I love the idea that people are stuck kind of on each one, right? Is stuck the right word? It almost seems like if you're developing, you're not really stuck. You're not really stuck, but you are in a rut. So you could say stuck in a rut, but there's nothing sticking you there. You're just there. And it's because the belief systems that you've been relying on for so long are deeply grooved into your subconscious and into your actions and behaviors that it's kind of like you're inside the bottle. You can't read the label. And this training that I'm talking about really shifts your perspective to all of a sudden you're outside the bottle and you're like, holy shit, what the heck was I doing for all those years? You know, like when I woke up, I would say that's kind of a common term you hear in like the Buddhist tradition to awake to your true self. When I woke up to my true self that said, hey, I want to be a warrior then I could look back at my life and go, what the hell am I doing as a CPA? If I meant to be a Navy SEAL, what the hell am I doing as a CPA? Those are about as far away as you can imagine. I finished my CPA, finished my MBA, got my black belt and blasted off to Officer Canada School and then went to BUDS training in 1990 and never looked back. You know, this whole philosophy kind of unfolded as I was a SEAL and then got out and started teaching other SEALs and professionals. I would imagine that not everyone's cut out to be a warrior. Is that correct in your estimation? Well, I would say not everyone's cut out to be a Navy SEAL, but everyone has the warrior archetype is within everyone when you activate it. And so it really is kind of the part of you that is willing to stand your ground and to not compromise on your values and to really step up and do the right thing in spite of the consequences. It is a challenge, right? And so some people are going to have more capacity to step into their warrior spirit and archetype than others, but it can be trained and developed in pretty much everyone. And then you'll express that in a way that's kind of right for you and meaningful for you. You know, a mom's going to express it by showing that she's strong for her kids and that she's not going to get pushed around by society or by her boss or even some jerk. And or in, in a more extreme example, she's going to be willing to like do whatever it takes to protect them in a crisis. And you see this all the time with women who are protecting their kids from some crisis. So that's one way you see it expressed. You see it in the corporate leader who says, you know, enough is enough. I'm not going to stay with this organization. I'm going to stand up to this organization that might be polluting the environment, doing something unethical, you know, because it's like systemic. A lot of times these happen in the corporate world just because no one's taking accountability for the actions of the organization. It's all too easy to just think that, oh, this is the way things have always been done. So the corporate warrior is someone who stands up and says, enough is enough. And in fact, organizations that are declaring themselves B corporations or conscious capitalist organizations, these are people who have stepped into their warrior archetype as business leaders. In some of your work, you talk about the human spirit soars when it's challenged. Can you explain exactly what that means? Does that go back to the plateaus that you were just talking about? Yeah, I think so. I mean, one of the reasons you get in a rut is because things get easy and everything gets patterned. And this is where the midlife crisis come in. Yeah, people are like, okay, I've mastered my domain and I just keep doing the same thing every day. And then 30 years go by and you're like, holy shit, is this all there is to life? And people have these real existential crises. And the way out of that is, it's part of what's wrong with our society in general, is that the hard has been taken out. The hard work of, you know, working the land and up at dawn and asleep at sundown because you got to work a 12-hour day and whatever it is, working with your hands as a master craftsman, all of that kind of forged your character, right? It, it's kind of like the martial arts idea of polishing the sword. Every day you woke up and you polish the sword of your character. And it was very liberating in a sense. It sounds hard, but over time, it just cultivates a refinement of your character. And that refinement is experienced as simplicity and grace and kind of a tamping down of the dark 
shadow aspects of your ego. And so you tend to develop great humility, non-attachment to material things. It doesn't mean you can't have them or don't desire or enjoy the fruits of your labor through, you know, like a nice house on the lake or the boat and stuff like that, but you're not really attached to it. You could easily let it go in a moment. That type of refinement has been lost in our society because everything has kind of gotten easy. Our kids just don't have any of that. Like I grew up with a lot more than even you did, probably, but, you know, listening to your story, like you went out and found it in the world. You know, you went out and got your ass kicked and <laughs> literally, yeah, quite literally, but those experiences crafted who you are today. So the warrior takes that to the extreme because they appreciate that hard work cultivates character and it allows you to tap into emotional control and emotional development and feel extended flow states. And you want more of that. And you're like, that's cool. I want more of that. And so you seek out challenge. Barely uh, ever talked about Jocko, but he was a teammate in a pyramid and he's out there doing, you know, doing great work. But Guys like us are kind of the extreme side of this archetype of the warrior. And so warriors like us seek out the severest schools. So BUDS was the only option for us. Like I didn't look at the different special ops and say, yeah, I could be a ranger or I could be a Green Beret. No, I just said, I want the toughest, hardest thing I could possibly do. And that's SEAL training. And I see that a lot in the guys that I train, that they just want to challenge themselves in the severest school so that they can grow and, and really meet themselves at a much deeper level. And then, you know, that helps forge who you are. That was kind of the emphasis for my SEAL Fit program. And I started with this program called Kokoro Camp or Kokoro, which is a 50-hour nonstop physical, mental, emotional training program that was modeled after the SEALs Hell Week. I was doing it just for SEAL candidates. And with literally by the second time I ran it, I had more civilians come than SEALs. They were like, hey, can we do this? Initially, they contacted, hey, I know this is for SEAL candidates and, and prep for SEAL training, but this sounds fantastic. I've always wanted to do this. I kind of missed the boat or I chose not to go down that path or or maybe even I'm kind of considering it. Can we do this? And I said, sure, but I'm not watering down the standards. And sure enough, they came. And nowadays, like 20% of my clientele or less are spec ops candidates. The rest are guys like you who maybe have missed the challenge and now are, are trying to make up for it. And so they kind of go into the severest school. Yeah, my friend Ben Greenfield, who you probably know, took Kokoro. There was something about being held in a tank and breathing out of a straw or something like that. I don't know. Maybe he was messing with me, but it sounds like something you would do. Yeah, it's exactly something we would do. And Ben did a great job. He, he came to our three-week training and then finished up with Kokoro camp. And, you know, it had a profound impact on him, just like it does everyone else. And he's a stud, you know? So yeah. it did challenge him physically, obviously. It was more the other aspects. And we say Kokoro camp, addresses five domains, physical, mental, emotional, intuitional, and spiritual. And so if you're coming as a stud, then the top adventure racer in the world has been through it three times. And every time he says he learns something new and profound about himself. And so obviously the physical part doesn't scare him. Right. Doing 50 hours of nonstop training is, okay, I can do that. No problem. Let me do it again and see what else I can learn. It sounds horrifying to me in multiple levels, which I think is kind of the idea, right? It should scare you. Mission accomplished. I noticed in some of your work that the essence of mental toughness for you, or according to you in some cases anyway, is when you unconsciously make the wrong choices and then notice that you're doing that. What does that actually mean? What are we talking about when we're talking about noticing the wrong choices and living sort of moment to moment and making the right choices? What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, part of it is kind of the progress of first getting control of your physiology so that the external 
stress is not manifesting in internally as anxiety or fear or your mind racing and out of control, which paralyzes you, right? And so that is something we teach at length in our SEAL fit training to control the physiology, right? So we use breathing practices, we use intense physical training, we use sleep deprivation, we use cold water, things that scare people, we make you face your fears. We teach people that moving toward the fear, like a SEAL will run toward fear, run toward the sound of gunfire, because that's how they're going to learn what's on the other side, where on the other side of that is knowledge and mission success. And so physiological control leads to mental clarity. In that mental clarity, you can begin to examine what decisions of yours are working and what aren't working. That's what I mean by, it's, a, it's kind of a law of contrast. You can see, okay, this thought led to this action, cause and effect, and that was suboptimal, right? Or flat out sucked. And so um, what was it about that thought? And so then we call this attention control. We begin to control our attention, be able to examine, slow down time to be able to examine our thoughts and to root out unproductive thoughts. And so now we want to shift to more productive thoughts. So we turn our attention or control our attention and direct it toward something that's going to be more powerful. First, we have to decide on what that's going to be, which takes you know even more clarity and a little bit more time. But we turn our attention toward the thinking process that's going to be powerful and productive and get us toward mission success, whatever, you know, how we define that. And we maintain this now with a very positive mental energetic state, which I call feeding the courage wolf, which over time, like tunes your mind like a tuning fork to always be optimistic, always be very positive about the outcome. And the SEALs, we say, failure is not an option. What they're really saying is we're kind of like feeding the courage wolf because no matter what happens to us, we will find a way or make a way to win the mission. Whereas someone else might look at, you know, a downed helicopter as a failure, we expect things like that to happen. How can we deal with that and still move briskly toward the target and toward mission success? So there's a lot there, but you know, we could each one of those could be a long topic of conversation, each one of those things I said. I'm sure. And one of the things that I noticed in Unbeatable Mind was you said that one of our skills as a SEAL, special operator, was to expect nothing to work out. And I immediately thought, that is so helpful in business because, well, nothing ever really quite works out <laughs> a lot of the time. No plan survives contact with the enemy is what we used to say. And so that's what we mean. You know, have a plan. But don't obsess about the plan. It doesn't need to be a perfect plan. Make it an 80% good enough plan and then go execute. But in that 80% good enough plan, you're still anticipating and dirt diving everything that could go wrong that you can think of. And so you already have a mental image or a mental construct about how to navigate Murphy's Law and how to navigate the screw-ups. First, you know, this is how the mission should go if everything was perfect, but we know conditions aren't perfect. So here's all the contingencies that could go wrong. If this happens, we do this. If this happens, we do this. Contingency planning, and we can mind game those. But then we also expect that there's going to be, you know, what Rumsfeld will call the unknowable unknowns. And so even then we expect to have to get creative and be MacGyvers and figure shit out on the fly. So then nothing surprises the SEAL, right? It's like, okay, yeah, that didn't work out. How can we solve this one? And we find a way or make a way. We go over, under, around it, or we just obliterate the obstacle with a drone. We'll be right back with more from Mark Devine after these brief messages. Thanks for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. For a list of all of our amazing sponsors and discounts, visit theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. 
And now for the conclusion of our interview with Mark Devine. You also mentioned that the most important lesson for mental toughness is to know your why. And it sounds like this goes back to what you were referring to earlier, which is you can't read the label from the inside of the jar. And to get that clarity is to know your why, which helps lead you through. Can you explain how that process works? What is our why and how does it help us become mentally tough? Sure. Well, the why is ultimately the last thing you have to connect to. You know, like Viktor Frankl in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, he actually created a whole philosophy called logotherapy. And it essentially means that ultimately you don't have control over anything except for the way you think. And so if you're imprisoned or like you were kidnapped, and all of a sudden you were freaking out because you're like, oh, why is this happening to me? Why am I this victim? Life sucks. Somebody come save me. Guess what? You probably wouldn't be on this podcast. Right. right? Instead of that, you said, hey, I got myself into this thing. My why is not to end my life here. I've got a lot of great work to do. These guys are idiots. Let me solve this problem. And ultimately, in your darkest moments, you could go back to a deep sense of why of your purpose and your place in life. I'm imagining, right? For sure. When I was 20, I wasn't really thinking about it, probably because I wasn't even necessarily mature enough to have a why. I just thought, well, this is awful. I'm not going to go out like this. But when I was 25 and when I got kidnapped by those state security officers, I think what really did go through my head was there's so much more that I have to do. And this is just such a shame. And I know that I can survive this, but I, I have to start getting it together. I can't just wait. No one's going to come rescue me metaphorically, physically, realistically. I really have to do this. It's up to me. Yeah, exactly. This is not my time. And so get your shit together. Use all the skills you can draw on and more and get out of this mess. And so Viktor Frankl was talking about that in the context of Jewish prisoners of war. And he said, you know, you can't control what the guards are going to do. You can't control the fact that you're in this shitty place. But what you can control is your attitude and you can control what you give to other people, right? And so he basically said, listen, find meaning, find your why in giving and supporting and helping the other people. And if we're all in this together and we all help each other, we'll get through this. And so that was very powerful and very inspiring for people. And it worked, by the way. The Navy SEAL, you know, like me, once I figured out that that was my path, then that was my why. Like I am going to be a Navy SEAL. They'd have to kill me to get me out. This is an imperative for me to go do this, to serve and to be a warrior and to serve my country. And so when I went through SEAL training every day, when I woke up, I kind of connected that and say, oh, here I am. Today's the only thing I have to worry about. I don't have to worry about tomorrow. The next evolution, whether it's a five-mile time run or a three-mile ocean swim, is the only thing I have to worry about. I don't have to worry about what comes after that. And I'm going to get through this. I'm going to kick ass and take names, do the best I can, because I know why I'm here. I'm here to be a Navy SEAL, period. But a lot of my peers didn't have that attitude. They were physically fit, and they were smart, and they had all the right stuff from the outer. But inside, when the going got tough and they hit that kind of dark night of the soul moment, they just couldn't answer the question, why am I doing this? And in fact, they started asking bad questions, like, what am I doing here? This sucks. I could be A, B, C, or D. You know what I mean? <laughs> I tell the story about this guy, Bill, who I went through off Canada school, who was a total stud. He went to a college just like mine. He was an athlete just like I was. He ran circles around me sometimes in PT, physical training, all around gung-ho, all-American guy. And he quit you know, in the first two hours of SEAL training. You know, <laughs> what? The first day, the first evolution was a several hour beat down on the beach. 
And I remember being out there and I'm like, wow, the odyssey has begun. And I'm really feeling excited, you know, like this is going to be awesome. And I'm getting paid to be on the beach here and I'm getting the shit kicked out of me. And these instructors are larger than life. And like, this is exactly what I signed up for. And Bush was obviously thinking something differently. Yeah, sure. It didn't happen for him. And he decided that wasn't what he wanted. And he went and rang the bell. And, you know, that's fine. He's having a great life, but he didn't know what he wanted until he was faced with that decision, you know, square on when the going got really, really tough. Sure, because he thought he was going to run circles around everybody. When that didn't happen, he cracked immediately, right? Yeah, pretty much. And so when you translate this to mental toughness, it's like, okay, ultimately, you know, he may have had pretty good control over his body when it came to functional fitness and athleticism and whatnot. That control hadn't extended to the um, internal domain where he could control his thoughts and begin to analyze and parse through what's going on. But he got obsessed with or stuck with that mental dialogue that said, holy shit, I can't do this, or I'm not sure I'm good enough to do this. Whereas in my mind, I was like, take a breath. Okay, they're asking me to do a push-up, do a push-up. Take a breath. They're asking me to climb this rope, just climb this rope. And then behind all that was, I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. I got this. This is easy. Stay focused. They'd have to kill me to get me out of here. And so there was this kind of like dialogue that I, you know, like I said earlier, I called feeding the courage wolf, which is just continually stoking my courage that I was going to get through the evolution. And then when the evolution was over, you got a little break and you're like, okay, that wasn't so bad. So many people quit during SEAL training, like five minutes before the damn evolution was over. Oh man. Like three hours of just brutal. And they're like, I can't take anymore. They quit. And the instructors, they're like waiting for that one last guy to quit. He quits. And then they say, okay, you're secure. Go take a hot shower and go grab lunch. And the guy's like, wait, I didn't know you were going to stop. Can I get back in? They're like, sorry, dude. Yeah. Bad decision. That's the point. Yeah. The instructors are fantastic at what they do. And they know they can see in people's eyes when they're about ready to quit. And they'll take evolutions like, okay, on paper, this evolution is going to go two hours and 20 minutes. And they get to like two hours and 18 minutes and they can look at this one guy and they're like, you know what? This guy is going to go. And so they might go like, two hours and 21 minutes until he just like, I'm uncle, I'm out of here. And then they'll be like, okay, we're done. And sometimes it goes the other way. They're like, okay, everyone who's here is just locked and loaded. And sometimes there's like this energy that comes over the boat crews in the class. And they're just like, we have met every objective of this evolution and nobody here is showing any weakness. And so they'll end it early and give the guys a little break, which is kind of cool. So the instructors are masterful at evolving. That's why we call them evolution. I believe it's because we're evolving character. And there's a certain objective that we're trying to meet at every evolution. And when it's met, everything else is kind of gravy. But they're great at poking and prodding and exposing weaknesses and then pouring a little salt in the wound and trying to see, is this person going to grow from this challenge that I'm throwing at him? Or is he going to fall apart? And 80% plus fall apart because this is relentless day in and day out for nine months, you know? That sounds just terrible. You really have to be wired to want that, and most people are not, and that's what you're searching for, correct? Yeah, the SEALs are searching for that, and what I'm teaching is how people can wire themselves for that. Not necessarily to go be a SEAL, although we do that, but to have that same level of resiliency and fortitude in the face of whatever challenge comes your way or whatever challenge you accept. In Unbeatable Mind, there's also five critical skills for developing mental toughness, including the big four taught to Navy SEALs. Does that mean that physical toughness, mental toughness is a set of discrete skills that are teachable 
and learnable? I believe so. Yeah, absolutely. The broadest level, I've already alluded to most of them. One is control over your physiology so that the external stresses don't affect you, you know, so that you're not in a constant state of fight, flight, or freeze. You're calm in spite of what's going on outside of you. And then it extends to a calmness of your mind in the middle of whatever firefight you have metaphorically or for a seal in a real sense. So that is physiological control leading to clarity of mind. And in that clarity of mind, now we have the ability to separate from your thinking processes and to think about your thinking in a very powerful way so that you don't have a quit moment. You literally keep stoking courage and you translate fear into persistence and performance and you translate, you know, what used to be anxiety into motivation, into determination, using your mind to develop emotional control, which leads to emotional power. That's a very distinct skill for mental toughness and resiliency. And now we also work with our imagery so that we can see the win. We can also see what we already talked about, see where the mission could fail so that we've already dove it in our minds. So once the failure does happen or the incident happens, we're quick to respond to it in a positive way rather than get slowed down or stopped in our tracks. And then all of this leads us to be very task oriented and chunk things down into a task that we can achieve right here, right now, that's going to move us toward victory. It's connected to a larger task, which is connected to a larger task in this long pearled thread of tasks. And so each task that you knock down and accomplish or each goal slash target becomes a victory. And then, so in this way, you just keep focusing on one task at a time. We call them micro goals. And then halfway toward your objective, you've had so many successes, so many victories that momentum is on your side. There's really nothing that can hold you back at this point. So those are the big four skills that I just walked through there. And the fifth is to really make it not about you, but about your teammate or at least something higher. And this goes back to the why. If you're doing this for a bigger why in the SEALs is to serve my country and to serve my teammate when it gets really shitty, there's a compounding effect on your energy and your positive energy when you're serving your teammate and you're in it for your team. And for the SEAL, the team is our, you know, our unit. And then also because, you know, we're fighting for America, you know, the Americans are our team and we're doing it for them, right? We're doing it for the country to preserve our lifestyle. And that's very motivating for all of us. So those are the skills. And I guess the big thing here, Jordan, is to recognize that these skills are trainable, like we said earlier. But in order to train them, you got to work them. You got to practice them. That's what SEAL training does. And that's what, you know, I teach my unbeatable mind. And we do a lot of it through SEAL Fit in a more of applied setting. Mark, thanks so much. This has been really, really enlightening and, of course, fascinating as well. And a little scary, which is the point. Uh, is there anything I haven't asked you that you want to make sure that you deliver? You know, I would just say, it all starts with physiological control. I've brought that up a few times. You can't do any of this if you're out of control. And so starting a breathing practice that I call box breathing is probably the biggest gift I can offer. And that's simply to slow your breathing down and to breathe in a pattern that looks like a square or a box. So you're inhaling to a four or five count, hold your breath to a four or five count, exhale to a four or five count, hold your breath, and just do that every day for, you know, just starting for five minutes and do it in the morning when you wake up so you don't get off and rushed about your day. And then check back in with you and see how it goes, because I've had thousands of people who just started with that. And then three months later or even earlier, they were like, wow, holy shit, this has had a profound effect on my ability to really be clear headed and to stay calm. So I've got surgeons who use it during surgery and attorneys who use it during cases and businessmen who use it during speeches. 
So it's a very, very powerful kind of introductory practice. Yeah, I like box breathing. I learned it when I took a, a course on what to do if you're kidnapped, which is, you know, a few years too late, but probably something you just never know. You get kidnapped two times, you're like, maybe I should get this under control. And they taught us box breathing because basically they throw you in a van, you have zip ties on, blindfold and things like that, and they teach you not to panic and they're throwing water on you the whole time which is kind of, I'm imagining this van with no windows driving down the road, leaking water and sweat from these dirty guys in the back. But it must have been a hell of a rental to return now that I think about it. But they're throwing water on us and stuff like that. And it's really cold on purpose. And then they turn the heat way up and then they leave us in the sun for a while. And then they come back and they're dousing us with this stuff and they're trying to get us to stay calm. And then we have to escape, get out, navigate to a certain point. And box breathing was one of the parts that they showed us. Because if you're just letting your heart race as quickly as it wants to, to either heat you up, cool you down, or manage the adrenaline, you end up in trouble because you can't think about what you need to do next and where you need to go and what you need to do to get out of there. So the box breathing is very interesting and definitely useful if you're a public speaker and you're up on stage and you find yourself freaking out or you lose your kid in a shopping mall and you're freaking out. It's a pretty universal skill. So thank you so much for sharing that. You bet, yeah. Mark, much appreciated. We will link to Seal Fit, Unbeatable Mind, and your books in the show notes, and I really appreciate your time. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you very much, Jordan. All right. Here we are. Great big thank you to Mark Devine. The book title is Unbeatable Mind, Forge Resiliency and Mental Toughness to Succeed at an Elite Level. This conversation was cool for me. When I interview these tough military, Navy SEAL, special operator guys, I mean, I've got friends who do this, but they're on a different level. And I often feel like I'm on the outside looking in. So it was cool to explore these emotional development, personal growth, mental toughness concepts, which I usually, I really just don't associate with myself at all, personally. And I was on Mark's show recently, and it was really interesting to see the parallels there too. So these two kind of back-to-back interviews of me on him and him on my show really did open up something I just never looked at myself in this way. And I'm not saying that I'm basically a Navy SEAL because I do a lot of learning. That's not what I'm saying here. But I think what you'll hear when you listen to this and when you start to explore your own mindsets, maybe some of you have a lot of this in common. These high performers especially have a lot of this mental toughness stuff in common. It doesn't mean you can do 5,000 burpees while getting hosed down on a beach in uh, Coronado, but it does mean that many of us are performing at a high level and we don't really think about the mindsets involved and we certainly don't think about how we can improve them. So looking forward to exploring more of that and it's gonna be cool having Mark Devine come through Art of Charm as well, which he had mentioned perhaps on his show, he's planning to come through AOC, so that's pretty rad. Tweet at me your number one takeaway from Mark Devine. I'm at the Art of Charm on Twitter. Remember, you can tap our album art in most mobile podcast players to see the show notes for this episode. We'll link to the show notes directly on your phone. I also want to encourage you to join us in the AOC challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or you can text the word charmed, C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to 33444. The challenge is about improving your networking skills, your connection skills, and inspiring those around you to develop a personal and professional relationship with you. It's free. A lot of people may not know that. It's a great way to get the ball rolling and a great way to get some forward momentum. We'll also email you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show. That includes some great practical stuff ready to apply right out of the box on reading body language and having charismatic nonverbal communication, the science of attraction, negotiation techniques, networking and influence strategies, persuasion tactics, and everything else we teach here at The Art of Charm. It will make you a better networker, it'll make you a better connector, and a better thinker. That's theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or text CHARMED 
That's C-H-A-R-M-E-D to 33444. For the full show notes for this and all previous episodes, head on over to theartofcharm.com slash podcast. This episode of AOC was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. Theme music by Little People. Transcriptions by transcriptionoutsourcing.net. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead, tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else either in person or shared on the web. Word of mouth is everything. So share the show with friends and enemies. Stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them.